Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Rachel Held Evans died yesterday morning. Rachel was a blogger, an author, a speaker. But for a lot of people, she was a lot more than that. Rachel was a trailblazer. She was someone who found her way out of the extreme conservative evangelicalism of her childhood, through her hurts and her questions and her doubts, and into a form of Christian faith that proclaimed and that practiced a gospel that she and so many others found to be truly good news. Maybe more importantly, Rachel was also a trail guide, someone who, through her writing and her speaking, through her encouraging and championing of others, helped other people also find the path to a true and authentic and life-orienting faith in Jesus. On Good Friday, Rachel was admitted to the hospital with complications from an allergic reaction to an antibiotic. Soon, doctors had placed her in an induced coma to try to resolve the constant seizure activity that was happening in her brain. And late this this last week, despite the medical team's best efforts, Rachel experienced brain swelling from which she would not recover, and she died early yesterday morning. Rachel Held Evans was 37 years old. And she had a husband and two children, ages three and one. I didn't know Rachel personally, although I know people who did. I've only read one of her four books, but in that book and in articles and blog posts that she wrote and in her social media engagement, I discovered someone whose faith in Christ was authentic and hard-won, Someone who was willing to challenge authority with strength, but also with humility and humor. Someone who used her platform and her influence to champion and to encourage others. I didn't agree with her on everything, theologically speaking, but that is beside the point. As my Twitter and Facebook feed these last days have attested and as the tributes that have come in from everybody from Lutheran pastor and iconoclast Nadia Boltz-Weber to the Southern Baptist Convention's Russell Moore, as they make clear, Rachel Held Evans loved God and loved others in ways that touched people's lives, that helped many people find a path to faith and a path to church who otherwise would have felt alienated from both. In other words, Rachel Held Evans was a witness. She was a witness to Jesus, through whose life and death and resurrection she experienced a truth and a love that compelled her to follow him and to invite others to follow him also. Part of what made Rachel's witness so powerful to so many was that it allowed room for doubt for her own and for others. In an interview about five years ago, she said, 
What it comes down to is that I recognize that faith is always a risk. No matter what we believe, there's always the chance we might be wrong. But the story of Jesus is just the story I'm willing to risk being wrong about. It is so compelling, and Christ's voice is so compelling to me that I will follow even at the risk of being wrong. One of the joyful aspects of Rachel's witness that she was known for was introducing many American Christians to a phrase, a Hebrew phrase, that's well known to a lot of our Jewish brothers and sisters. It's eshet chayil. It means a woman of valor. And it's the Hebrew phrase in Proverbs 31 that often in our English translations is translated into something like an excellent wife or a wife of noble character. Proverbs 31 is a tribute to such a woman, but in at least some American Christian circles, that tribute often gets interpreted as an ideal of femininity that looks more like a 1950s television show than it does what the scripture actually depicts. But Rachel, reclaimed the strength of that passage, and she reclaimed the strength of the term woman of valor. And so she would always be quick to proclaim, Eshet Chayil, any time a woman did something that was a way of living into the fullness of who God had created and called her to be. Caitlin Beatty is a Christian author. She's the former managing editor of Christianity Today, and she wrote this yesterday in her tribute to Rachel Held Evans. She said, I'm struck by how generative Rachel's work was. To think of how many writers would never have started putting pen to paper were it not for her courage, her chutzpah, her eshet chayils along the way. For many of us, she opened doors we never could have opened ourselves. The least we could do in her honor is to try to open a few more along the way. What I appreciate about that comment from Caitlin Beatty is that It reflects a truth not just about Rachel Held Evans, but about what it means for any of us to be a follower of Christ. That our faith is never ours alone. That it always exists as part of a community. Part of what it means to be a Christian, to be a witness to the risen Christ, is to help others to experience and put their faith in the risen Christ as well. And it's this community aspect of our faith, of our Christian witness, that I've been pondering as I've been sitting with our passage from Acts this week. As we talked about last Sunday, during this 50-day season of Eastertide, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts and seeing how it can help us understand what it looks like for us to live as Easter people as people who are witnesses of and to the risen Christ. Our passage today is the story of Paul's conversion. At least that's how we often think of it. But not only is he not yet named Paul in the story that we read this morning, he's still Saul, but I think we'd be better off to think of it as the story of Paul or Saul's conversion and of Ananias' faith. Because without Ananias' faith, I'm not sure Paul would have had a conversion, or at least not a complete one. 
What the story of Paul and Ananias shows us is that community is a crucial part of Christian witness. So let's unpack this by looking a little more carefully at the story, um, even though it's probably familiar to many of you. Chapter 9 of Acts begins, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Readers of Acts first meet Saul back in the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, when Stephen is being stoned. He's the first man martyred for his witness to Christ. And Luke writes, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, it is clear that Saul is kind of a bad dude in this story, right? But it's important to remember, I think, that Saul thought he was being a good Jew. He thought he was protecting his fellow Jews from the false teaching, the blasphemy of Jesus and his followers. And when we get to chapter 9, Saul is still at it. He hasn't been content to just round up Jesus' followers in Jerusalem. He wants to go on up to Damascus in Syria, too. And so he goes to the high priest, and he gets basically letters of introduction to the synagogues in Damascus so that he can go there and he can arrest those who are following the way and bring them as prisoners back to Jerusalem. So Paul is on his way to do his persecuting deeds, and this is when we get what we know of as his Damascus moment. Saul is on the road, he's walking along, and there is a bright light from heaven, so bright that it knocks him down, and he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he answers, who are you, Lord? When he says, who are you, Lord, he's really saying more, who are you, sir? He doesn't know who this voice is. This is um, just a term of respect that he's using. Who are you, sir? And the response is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. What a remarkable answer. First of all, because Saul would not himself have, would not have thought of himself as persecuting anybody. He was just trying to guard the faith. But it's also remarkable that Jesus tells Saul that not only is he in fact persecuting people, but that by persecuting Jesus' followers, Saul is actually persecuting Jesus himself. And then there's what Jesus says, or rather doesn't say. He doesn't say, I am Jesus, whom you have been persecuting, so get ready to be persecuted yourself. He says, but. He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. 
the first hint of Jesus' mercy towards Saul, we see here that whatever it is that's coming Saul's way in Damascus, it's not what he deserves for the persecution that he's been doing. After this huge bright light and this voice from heaven, Saul finds that he is blind. His eyes are open, but he cannot see. And so the men that he's traveling with have to guide him by the hand into the city. This man who has been just persecuting people and exhibiting great power throughout Jerusalem and now on his way to Damascus is helpless and has to be held and led by the hand. And for three days he is there, blind, not eating or drinking. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, meanwhile, there's a man called Ananias who is a disciple of Jesus, who lives in Damascus. And while Jesus is speaking to Saul on the road, Jesus is appearing to Ananias in a vision. And Jesus calls to him in a way that's reminiscent of God's call to the prophets throughout the Old Testament. He says, Ananias, and Ananias says, Here I am, Lord. And Jesus says, I want you to get up. I want you to go to the house of a man named Judas, and I want you to look for Saul. He says, because he is praying, and he has seen a vision that a man called Ananias will come to him and lay hands on him so he will see again. So while Ananias is receiving his vision, Jesus is also appearing to Saul in a vision. There's this profound connection between these two men. Jesus says, Ananias, I want you to go to Saul. And Ananias says, I'm sorry, who and what? Because Saul's reputation preceded him to Damascus. Ananias knew, everybody knew, what Saul did to people who were Jesus' disciples. And here was Jesus calling Ananias not just to go voluntarily to Saul, but to heal him of his blindness. I mean, a blind Saul could have been slowed way down in his persecution. But Jesus wants Ananias to go to him and heal him of that blindness. So Ananias says to Jesus, you want me to do what and go to who? Don't you know who this is? And Jesus responds, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Saul is Jesus' chosen instrument to carry Jesus' name, the one who he's been persecuting? What on earth is going on here? But Ananias goes. I mean, what an incredible moment of trust. What an incredible confidence that he had, in fact, heard the Lord correctly. Not only is Ananias basically walking into the lion's den, but he is proclaiming God's favor to the lion. But Ananias does it. And here's what I think is really remarkable. He walks into Judas's house and he greets Saul as brother. Brother Saul. 
The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I suspect there was some fear and trembling in Ananias as he said this, but there wasn't hatred, there wasn't retribution, there wasn't even a sense of grumbling or of reluctance. Jesus has sent me so that you may see and be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, Ananias is a crucial piece, not just of Saul's healing, but of his conversion. God could have filled Saul with the Holy Spirit right there on the road into Damascus, but he didn't. God chose to use one of Jesus' disciples, one of Jesus' disciples, to be part of the means by which Saul himself became one of Jesus' disciples. It's not that Saul couldn't have been converted without Ananias' obedience, but that's what God wanted. That was God's preference, his choice, for Ananias' witness to be a crucial part of Saul's conversion. And just think, if you're Saul in that situation, how powerful a witness of Jesus' power this would be, that this man who had every reason to be terrified of you, or at least to want to punish you and to take revenge, that this man comes in love and in mercy, that he lays hands on you and heals you and fills you with the Holy Spirit. God chose for Ananias' witness to be part of Saul's conversion. And God chose for Saul's conversion to be part of Ananias' discipleship. Because I think this was an opportunity for Ananias to learn in an even deeper way just how infinite was the mercy and the grace, and the boundary-bursting love of Jesus. New Testament scholar Matthew Skinner writes this. He says, it isn't enough for Saul to encounter Jesus on the road. He also needs a wider community of disciples to confirm his experience and help him move toward wholeness. Ananias, the face of that community, also needs a revelation. Something has to convince him that God is capable of bringing blessings to and through even someone as cruel as Saul. Saul and Ananias need each other in their journey as witnesses of the risen Christ. Their witnesses didn't exist apart from their community with each other. And as is true with Saul and Ananias, and Ananias, it is true with us. Our discipleship, our witness of the risen Christ, our walk as Easter people, that also cannot exist apart from others, apart from the community. So what does that mean for us? Two things, I would say, this morning. First, I think it's an invitation for us 
to take the time to recognize and to express gratitude for the people whose witnesses have been part of our own discipleship, who have helped us to experience Jesus and his resurrection power. I think that's part of what I've seen in the outpouring of grief over Rachel Held Evans' death and of gratitude for her life. But I think this is an invitation for us to express gratitude to others who've been part of our witness, to express gratitude to them before we can only express gratitude for them. Recently, I received an email from a young woman who um, was part of the church that I served before this. I met her when she was in third grade. She's now in college. And she wrote me to tell me that over this last year, God has been revealing to her that he is calling her to ordained ministry. And she just wanted to say that her experience in that church growing up, and in, in a small part, her experience of having me as her pastor, she's now seeing was part of that call. I share that not as a boast on myself, but just to say what a tremendous gift and encouragement to see what God is doing in this young woman's life. But then also as a reminder to me that God does work through me, and so it's a call to me to continue to be faithful to the call that he has given. So we can take this opportunity to express gratitude for the people who've been part of our own witness Not just to make people feel good, but to testify to the work of the Lord. To testify about how he uses us and works through us, sometimes without our knowledge. Our our witness of God's work through someone else, God's work in our life through someone else, can be part of God's work in that person to spur them on in their own walk with God. So we can recognize and express our gratitude for those whose witness has been part of our own discipleship. And then I think we can ask God, to whom might he he be calling us to witness? To whom might God be sending us as part of that person's encounter with the risen Christ? This can be a difficult thing to ask God to do. Because as a friend of mine said recently, rarely does God, pe- does God send people to the easily lovable. Saul was far from easily lovable for Ananias. And while it's not terribly likely that God will send one of us to someone who is actively persecuting the church, although he might, I think God very well may, even likely, may call us to witness to those to whom it's hardest for us to show the love of God. So what if we do, what do we do if that is the case? What what do we do if as we pray and say, God, who would you send me to? The person we hear him sending us to is someone we don't really want to go to. Well, I want to say that it's not just a matter of our sort of gritting our teeth and willing ourselves to love the person. That generally doesn't work for very long. I think what it is a matter of is asking God to work in our hearts. Not to just 
produce us as loving people like magic, but to help us work through whatever it is in us that's keeping us from wanting to love that person. There may be legitimate hurt and anger for something that person has done. There may just be a strong sense of disconnection. And what I think God invites us to do is to bring him into all of those feelings and experiences. To acknowledge them and say, God, this is how I feel about this person. And the fact that you want me to show them your love. And then we can let God bring his light, his wisdom, and his healing to those places in our hearts in the way that only he can. And as we experience the power of God's love in us, then we can open ourselves to be sent out to that person or those people in the same love, in the power of that same love. It may be, in fact, just as I suspect it was for Saul with Ananias, it may be that if we are able to witness to the love of God to someone to whom it is hard for us to do that, it may be the fact that it's us, that it's we who are the ones who are doing that, that ends up being the most powerful witness to that person of the power of Christ's love. Thomas Merton who was a Trappist monk and a spiritual sage, wrote this in a letter to Dorothy Day, another sage. He said, Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. That is not our business, and in fact, it is nobody's business. What we are asked to, asked to do is to love And this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbors worthy. That kind of love, that kind of transformation, that is the witness to the power of the risen Christ. So as we walk through this Easter tide, may we be people, may we be a community in whom and through whom. The power of the love of God is witnessed to you every day. Amen. Amen. Amen.